Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. everybody, welcome back to all new, all different, Uncanny X's for Podcast, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title 80s expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. I'm Nico, and I really didn't think this episode was going to exist, but here we are. Last episode, Jonah and I embarked on an incredible adventure in which we began talking about Uncanny X-Men 161 to 166. These represent six of my all-time favorite issues of the classic Chris Claremont era. These issues define the X-Men's relationship space for some time to come. They also mark a dramatic transition for the titles, whether it's the introduction of the new mutants or it's the departure of Carol Danvers as she takes on a new role in the Marvel Universe. This was such a big idea and we just couldn't stop talking, so here we are doing a second episode covering the other half. Today we're going to be examining primarily 164 to 166, inevitably throwing in some 161 to 163. These issues were published from September of 1982 to February of 1983 and were by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum, save for the final two, three issues worth if you think about it, because man, 166 is a double-sized, long-ass motherfucker by Chris Claremont and Paul Smith. Jonah, this was such an incredible discussion with you, because we covered how much the X-Men are in a constant state of transformation, but like, more this arc than usual. When we last saw things, Xavier had just relived like his, like, I don't know, I, I don't even know how to explain it, but Xavier had another lady that he was inexplicably romantically involved with. Why do women go for Xavier? Well, it's the same reason why do people go for Scott. Oh. Oh my god, just, I'm like, uh, no, Scott makes sense, because Scott has those really happening red sunglasses. That's all Scott has, he has so many issues. But that's fine, we've all, like, I am positive, we've all hit on somebody because they had a cute item of clothing and we thought to ourselves, the next morning I can steal it when I leave. Well, yes, obviously, you see someone, you're like, I want to wear that. Right, so I'll wear them and then I'll wear that, and that makes sense. Wear them out. Man, Xavier just, sure, that's what I meant. So, Xavier just plows through bad language. Xavier just drills, no, I well, Xavier gets a little too much action, if you ask me. And... I feel like the introduction of Gabrielle Holler, as much as I love her, is a little bit underwhelming. Wolverine's solo issue versus The Brood got some of the highest marks we've ever given an issue here. Whether it's Claremont's incredible take on Logan's personality so clearly defined in a tangible way, where the fear he experiences is palpable, and the visuals are used to convey his mortality in an era where we've always assumed, well, frankly, Wolverine's just about unkillable. His metal adamantium skeleton helped to drive the brood out of his body and allowed him to recover. Shortly thereafter, he found Carol Danvers, who was experiencing a power fluctuation, and together they reunited with Storm, who, while she isn't sure, knows something is wrong with her body, as well as the other X-Men. Logan is aware that the other X-Men have brood eggs implanted in them and are undergoing transformation, but he's putting off telling them as long as he can, and I really couldn't tell you why, it actually drives me nuts. And I do believe that brings us to right now. 164 sees Storm, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Lalandra, Kitty, Carol, Wolverine, and 
Cyclops in a ship targeted by the Brood. You know, I'm really glad I had an opportunity to say Nightcrawler, because I feel like Nightcrawler easily gets the shortest end of this arc. He absolutely does. Nightcrawler is not very, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, visible in this issue because they don't really, I just don't know how to say other way to say this is that they just are not using Nightcrawler right now. And that's okay. You don't need to do everyone right now, but your, your characters, especially on your main team, should at least make an appearance not more than two thirds of the way into your story. I agree. It's a huge problem for me. And that's something we've talked about a few times. Claremont's cast just gets bigger and bigger till it's too overwhelming to be believed sometimes. I resent that Kurt is used little more than as a transporter. He is essentially just beaming people around throughout the entire arc. And I know that we've had a lot of time to focus on Kurt. I feel he got a very fair shake in the Belasco story. And previous Kurt stories, like the last Starjammers arc from 154 to 157, have seen Kurt shown in a wonderful light. Not to mention his great appearance in Kitty's Fairy Tale, which of course is going to come back up later this issue. One of the people who gets all the fucking spotlight still is Carol Danvers. Now, this is the end of Carol overtaking the X-Men, but what a brilliant, beautiful way to go. Carol Danvers is on a personal, rather cosmic journey of self-discovery, and there's just that incredible moment where about eight pages into the issue, we see that weird red fire burst of her face. She looks kind of like Fire Lord, and everything seems lost. The X-Men can't possibly escape again. Nothing's going right, and there's this bright, brilliant flash like we haven't seen in some time, and the book just cuts away. And it cuts to that Ileana and Charles scene we talked about finding a little uncomfortable before. It is such an uncomfortable, eerie scene because it kind of feels like Ileana has ulterior motives and she's like scheming and plotting something. She just kind of seems sinister, but like, I I don't know what it is. If it's just the way she's drawn, it's her expressions, it's the language she's using. It's right now something is definitely up with her and I don't know personally whether it's good or bad and Nico probably knows already, but it's just weird and it's weird that Charles is like, I don't really know if you're a mutant or not still, but you could still stay here. It's just, I don't know. (laughs) Claremont's still seeding plenty of things right now, but again, is this the time for it right now? I don't know. Something I have to point out is that this is probably the, like, 11th Claremont story in a row that involves everybody sitting in this goddamn kitchen. Uh, yo, but he just likes to say, Claremont using some has some mentality of a sitcom where he has to reuse sets that I don't... Yeah, he, he really loves watching people eat, too. And, like, I'm not trying to be like, maybe he's a foodie, but maybe he's a foodie. Well, we know a couple of things that he does do enjoy. Because we didn't sign well. any disclosures. <laughs> oh, three little letters that have brought down so many people. I agree with you that there is definitely something amiss afoot about Ileana. And I want you to keep this sequence of Ileana sitting at a table in mind, because this is a visual that Claremont not just appreciates, but will come back to use in different ways. I agree that, I don't know, it's like Ileana's like, <laughs> on the bottom of the last panel, and Xavier's kind of like, Hur. like they're having an Eddie Vedder share off right now. And Scott Stapp 
is just creeping in in the background. But I digress. What is far more exciting is Binary's first appearance in all her glory. Yes, we tend to steer towards things we're comfortable with writing with, and I don't think Chris Claremont is any more comfortable writing supernova powerful women, and him giving the green light to write Carol Danvers as Binary is, you know, his substitute for a little bit of writing Gene as the Phoenix, as writing Storm as the primal goddess, because Binary's design looks very similar to Storm when she let her anger get the best of her when they encountered Doctor Doom. Yeah, that the cover that says Rogue Storm and she's exploding with lightning. Absolutely, that's a great visual comparison. I really see it. I also think that this costume manages to be incredibly revealing without being terribly sexual. It's a very sexy costume, but you know, Carol doesn't feel sexualized in it. Yeah, she's wearing the clothing the clothing is definitely not wearing her oh that's a great way to look at it and there's those two pages right after she saves them essentially where she's talking with storm and her eyes are so intense and then we see her use her powers and it's this stunning reflection of power signatures and fire and energy and you know carol danvers can never simply go back as a matter of fact multiple runs of ms and captain marvel do echo these periods in her life and talk about her abilities as binary I am an enormous fan of this iteration of the character, and, you know, I know I maybe mentioned a little bit that while these are certainly Dave Cockrum's last pages as regular penciler, 164 is his swan song to the Uncanny X-Men as a regular penciler, these pages of Carol, and they just, they look particular. He definitely went out on a high note, and I'm glad the man that gave us the Phoenix got to give us one more cosmic lady before he left. Dave Cockrum didn't get to be there to see Jean Grey die, and it must have been hard for a guy who co-created this big idea to see it unfold away from him and that he got to in some ways say no no there's still hope and he gave us binary it just makes me so happy and we're immediately faced with exactly what you said she's a stand-in for Jean one of the things we said about Jean is Jean made no sense in the X-Men at her Phoenix levels binary says that she will not be going back to Earth pretty much right away yes add on to what you were saying about Dave Cockrum he actually came back writing stories Storm as the primal goddess, so really, really, really interesting that he came in on, you know, a woman so powerful that she couldn't control her powers for just a moment to having a greater understanding as to who she is and what her purpose in life and the universe is. So I think that's pretty stellar and amazing and good for Dave Cockrum. I agree. I know that this is not the last time we're going to see Dave Cockrum. While certainly we have bemoaned a lack of Kurt this arc, Dave Cockrum is going to return to the pages of X-Men, writing a Nightcrawler miniseries that I am very excited to get to, as it is four tremendous issues that still get referenced today, which is as great an introduction as any to Kurt is suddenly a doctor? Dr. Kurt and Nurse Kitty. Yeah, I'm fine with it because, you know, I want to see Kurt be happy and successful and he's the best, but Kurt being the doctor in this scene only works for me because I do think Kurt is one of the more clever X-Men. Yes, but he he also doesn't really do anything outside of very general advice, you know, sleep, rest, drink hot tea with lemon and honey, and listen, I like Dr. Kurt, I like to see him on pages, I like that we are seeing more of him, and him especially interacting with Kitty and seeing their friendship bloom. <laughs> he wasn't really much of a doctor. He flat out says, yeah, I didn't do anything but touch the buttons, beep beep, but I need to, like, one of the things, I totally get that he's, you know, okay, Kitty, cough, but one of, like, he 
flat out says, like, she had a hole blown in her. I don't know what checking if she's got a cold is gonna do. And then she asks, am I gonna be okay? And he's like, I don't know. Then why did you do that? You don't know what that's for. Go back to the circus, elf man. The space circus, I guess. However, (laughs) oh, he tried, and I love him. I do, and I actually really love his conclusion. There's no reason she should be this much better. And one of the reasons I love that is because I have to imagine that traveling in the circus, growing up in the very on-the-sidelines-of-society way that Kurt was forced to grow up because of his mutations, that Kurt is used to seeing people get sicker and sicker without access to proper medical care. So I think Kurt being like, no, she should not be this much better already, immediately makes a lot of sense for me. Well, even so, even in the circus and the performing world you know people get hurt there's missteps and sometimes they are not able to recover quickly or at all but he would know you know that's not even if they are mutants and have mutant genes that's still not a reasonable rate for someone to heal that doesn't have a healing factor Agreed. And the only thing in the rest of this issue that even annoys me one iota is I just wish that Logan didn't put off telling them about the brood infection a little bit longer. I don't think it's particularly bad or anything because I'm, I have to be real. This starts a really long line of nonstop storm love for me. I don't know that I think there is a storm misstep again for like 80 issues. Basically, 164 signals storm becoming what is the X-Men for me and there is something so powerful about her being like no there's something wrong with my body I know there's something wrong with my body and needing to run it is so powerful and when I think about what she must be going through she needs to be connected to earth and she doesn't want to ever feel claustrophobic and tied down and shelled in and here she is trapped millions of miles from earth without access to our sun which she says is starting to hurt her and she's in this horrible metal tin and now she realizes there's something trapped in her body with her that's a new level of claustrophobia I can't even begin to imagine and she just knows something's wrong and all she wants to do is die so she runs away and the whole thing is just so passionate powerful it's what Claremont understands about Storm the best how her passion to protect other people is the only thing that really makes her crazy if she can't be sure that she's Storm that she's here to save people she's in danger once Logan reveals the truth of the brood to the other X-Men Carol does the only dumb thing in the entire arc she blows a hole in the side of the ship this felt like fake tension they needed to use to buy time for storm to ascend if you will i don't think this part was necessary i'm i had no doubt for any second that the x-men weren't going to figure out how to stay on the ship and how to repair everything i literally had no doubt whatsoever that they were going to be fine. So I don't think that tension was needed whatsoever. I really, really agree with you. And for my sake, one of the things that makes me the angriest about it is we're given two... You know, I talked last episode about how Claremont creates so many parallels and comparisons in this arc. It's so important to him that we see the human experience and that he be able to express and explore the ideas he's trying to express and explore in psychology through the narrative in multiple ways. It's not just that Xavier has lost his children in the form of losing the X-Men. It's that Corsair realizes he will forever have lost his children because he can't stay on Earth with Alex no matter what. And if he doesn't return to space to save Cyclops, then he could lose him too. There are so many levels and layers to how Claremont explores these things and to show two women simultaneously reacting what is an unfortunate, unreasonable, they're acting both unreasonably, and that both of their actions could lead to 
others' deaths, Storm for stealing one of their only ships, and Carol for blowing a hole in the wall. While I don't frequently find myself accusing Claremont of outright acts of misogyny, this does strike me as an example of unreasonable woman syndrome in a way I would expect better of a writer like Claremont who is so dedicated to portraying women in positive light. I absolutely agree. I I honestly think that it could have been, and probably should have been, replaced with somebody else, and maybe you can't really do that with Storm, because she is the only one, very literally as we find out, connected to the Earth and the universe and to the sun and life, but... Carol going off in anger. It could have been Scott. It could have been Colossus. I think it should have been someone else to have that unreasonable moment of letting their emotions take over because having them both be women, whether or not it was intentional, even if it makes the most sense, I think there might have been a solution that makes almost, if not just as much sense, that wouldn't have undertones of misogyny. Yeah, why didn't the brood launch a missile or have a bomb on the ship? That's not a judge, it's a bomb! And why didn't we just do it a different way? Why did somebody have to, in part, blow up the ship? But it's fine. It's completely fine. Because if somebody hadn't tried blowing up the ship, I don't know that we would have got Paul Smith doing what can only be explained as the cutest ever rescue of a spaceship. One 165, like 165 is like literally just like one of the best issues of X-Men ever. It's not like a standout issue where I'm like, holy shit, every page. But it's like a really good issue. (laughs) I love that they're like, quick, use Colossus as a pillow pal. Yes. 165 takes such a turn for action where it slows everything down considerably. It's, there's very little action going on and there's a lot more for lack of a better way of saying this, prose, like, storytelling going on as opposed to the mixture. I get what you're saying. There's, like, more story through personal growth than there is through explosions in this world. Yes. Which I think is fine. It, it's okay, but I actually think this is a really great issue. I think Smith really sets himself apart with the art. I think he draws everyone pretty well. I think the only person I'm like, maybe Fion is the way Colossus looks, but that could just be his art style and I'm not used to it yet. But I think maybe... Some of it could have been cut down just a little bit and have more action in it because we're in such a tense moment and a tense period of time for the X-Men. I don't know if there's actual time for it to slow down everything. And it's such an interesting thing that you say that because I feel like 166 is almost all action. 166 is beginning to end non-stopness and he keeps almost all of the asides there to one page at a time. 165 gives me one of my all-time favorite covers, one of my all-time favorite storm sequences and i'm gonna be honest kitty pride's nightmare sequence is one of the best nightmare sequences claremont ever does and i hear you saying that you're a little unsure about colossus let me interact with that for a second here's how i feel about paul smith paul smith is the step between dave cockrum and 1980s eyeglass advertisements and i think colossus just looks rural rural 80s you know what i mean maybe that's what it is but god that page where he pulls open his shirt i'm like damn good for kitty (laughs) although i guess it's time to talk about that (laughs) 
Kitty and Colossus are very clearly five years apart. Yes. This is not subtle. This is not even hinted. This is explicit, which of course leads me to pointing out the page where Kitty and Colossus are embracing after he's comforted her. And she says, gee, I wish I was older. And Colossus says, so do I. Not a da in sight. And she says, you're fooling, right? Humoring the kid to perk up her spirits, which not only does that dialogue feel really true to Kitty Pride, but God, she's such a mature kid. I really understand why you reading this, the man you are, connects with Kitty so much, right? And Colossus says, I knew precisely what you meant, Katya. I have never been more serious. And then they make out. And I'm like, yo, Kitty, this would be an after space special. What are you doing? Yes, and they're both still teenagers. Whether Colossus is older and maybe should be a little bit more mature and know better. They're in a a very tense situation. And I think them discussing the nature of their relationship, being that there is a significant age gap with Kitty being 18, and we don't consider 18-year-olds teens really... I do appreciate them at least trying to have that conversation and understanding this might not really work out. We can have fun. We understand that there might be more serious adult feelings here, but for the time being, it's unfortunate, but you're just not old enough yet. I agree. I want to give a little bit of a bigger picture that I understand the X-Men have seen, you know, death and life and literally gone to hell and back and there's a sense of maturity involved. So I don't know that I'm necessarily calling Colossus untoward, but there is something that makes me a little too uncomfortable about the age disparity at this point. I feel a bit better later on when Kitty's older, though this is not the only much older Pete Kitty will ever date. So keep in mind, Kitty has a thing for older European guys named Pete with emotional issues relating to their sisters. That's going to come up a number of times somehow. Oh, I know exactly who you're you're talking about right now, but I I won't say who it is. But as soon as you said all that together, I was like, oh, okay. I yeah. know it, but it'll yeah. happen in. Yeah, that's that's my that's my ship, yo. So Speaking of ships, one of the most incredible things I have ever fucking read in my life is Binary destroying the fuck out of that Rude Planet. Holy shit. She not only destroys the Rude Planet, but that moment where she psychically shares her her life force with the Akanti, and the Akanti is like, hey, I really want to die, because if I die, I can become part of my child's journey and protect them and pass down the soul of my people. Because it turns out, her child is the Akanti that Storm merged with and is now a magical psychic lady so okay i know i warned you when we started this show that storm will eventually just get every superpower but this had to be a little wild even by that definition yeah i i can storm actually talks about it within these issues of she doesn't really understand how she would be able to do arcane magic and because her powers come from nature and there's a very big distinction between natural magic and natural mysticism versus the arcane arts but i will say this reading marvel and understanding a lot of it it almost seems like anybody can can learn arcane magic they just kind of have to like try really hard at it you got or be really upset if you can be really upset for a minute you can usually do some crazy magic but yeah this is a little too much to give to storm I know it's not going to be forever. It's really only for these issues of Storm Astral projecting herself and being one with a space whale. But uh, uh, a magical giant space whale. Thank you. Come on now, Akanti. That's the new word that Mm. we should be using. We should, whenever we want to call somebody a bad word, we're going to sub in Akanti. The Akanti actually really do play some really amazing roles in this arc. 
One of the things I think is so clever and creative is the point at which Claremont says that the Akanti's bones scale so high into the sky that the brood park ships on them, and the X-Men have to scale the corpse to reach the ship. What a cool moment. Yes, but no one else is a really cool moment. Seeing all the X-Men together in a frame with their actual sizes comparatively, now, I when I first saw this panel... I almost burst out into laughing because I understand Wolverine is short. That's talked about a lot. He, everybody calls him short stuff, short stack, whatever, and leads to him being angry. But runt. here, runt, runt is another one that they use frequently. But here you can actually see how tall everyone is. Wolverine is just barely shorter than Kitty. Yeah, I mean, number one. The binary outfit on that page in particular, I swear to God, looks just like the Avengers Quantum Suits. It looks fucking amazing. That panel of the X-Men is such a great image. The way Paul Smith captured just about everything I love in that image is amazing. My only complaint, right? And he did so much. He, he drew so many versions of Storm. Storm had trouble astrally projecting herself to be the Storm we know and love initially. So she took on a few different forms of herself and we kind of got to see a what's what and a who's who of all of our favorite iterations of Storm. But here, the only thing that I really have a complaint about is Nightcrawler should be some kind of hunched. I don't know why he draws Nightcrawler with such phenomenal posture in this image. He even has it right in other images in the next few pages, where Nightcrawler immediately goes into his hunch. But Nightcrawler would never be that upright, so I feel a little weird about pointing that out and, like, shitting on it, because I'm like, oh, Paul Smith, oh. But yeah, Nightcrawler. No, it's kind of... It's kind of like seeing like an animal stand on its hind legs. You're like, you know that they can do it, but it looks weird when they do it. And you're like, that doesn't look quite right. You're not supposed to be doing that. No, I agree completely. And like usual, like every Claremont space epic, once we get into the actual narrative of the space epic, <laughs> it's a lot of punchy, punchy, fighty, fighty in space. And with the exception of the dramatic reveal of Logan being like, shit, Cyclops, you're a brute already. Oh my god, Logan fighting Scott being like, I don't want to hurt you, is one of my favorite things. But holy shit, holy shit, we just need to take a moment. Number one, I hate the X on Kitty's forehead. It makes it look like shoot here. That's number one. But number two, Kitty makes a friend. I know, it- it's a, it's a little fun dragon-looking-esque friend. It's a little purple dragon for her to love named Lockheed. And I think Claremont gets away with a lot of stuff at the height of his excellence, like this period of time. He gets away with a lot, but Lockheed is one of those things where you don't have to necessarily say he gets away with it. You want to love Lockheed. Lockheed's an adorable purple dragon. The fuck would be wrong with you to hate a lovable purple dragon? And the magic of this story is that they're in the Akanti, and the Akanti itself is a mystical creature. So the things living in the Akanti, it's true, there are types of fish that live in whales, and this dragon lives in the Akanti. And as the X-Men continue to fight their way, the brood is like, ah ha ha, I'm going to infect this, and even this holiest of holy cannot survive me. And you truly do believe that it might be too late but the magic that is binary and the art is so powerful for one of my favorite moments in my entire x-men reading life is carol and that that moment of ascendancy where she is the starburst and then she returns and she says oh my and the next thing you see is the crystal brew because the true spirit of the akanti the true soul the essence of this majestic ancient space creature is so pure and so true that even the brood's infection can't stand up and in Instead, the brood is purified and made whole because, you know, there's actually nothing good in a brood. 
it's pretty amazing to look at and to see what happened. And I don't think I fully understood it until you were explaining it. But now that I got everything, it's such a beautiful moment. And it's it's just something great to read. And I'm so happy that that was the story that Chris was able to come up with. Yeah, the whole thing that Binary is doing is she uses her power and reaches out as the act of a living star, and she releases the Akanti's soul, which empowers it to be its true self. And so much of Claremont's stories are about ascension and ascendancy. Jean obviously goes on a quest for as well, no, Jean is pushed into a quest for ascense. Magneto is constantly on a quest for ascense. Carol has always been looking for who she was, and in losing who she was, she was able to find her destiny. Now, I do love the Star Jammers showing up and helping save the day because, you know, I love the Star Jammers and I think they're a good time, as I've stated a million times over and over again. But this does maybe feel like a one page shoehorn. Just like, oh, look, the Star Jammers showed up and we're saved. It's the same kind of quick thing that we had a problem with at the end of 157. Just because you only have three pages left doesn't mean you're ending. Th- I don't think the Star Jammers were necessary. <laughs> well, it also brings us to something that I'm glad hasn't come up yet. I really appreciate us being able to talk about this whole arc, not really understanding what they were doing with Xavier. But Jonah, that last page revealed that the X-Men have to go stop Charles Xavier, who has a brood queen egg, and you know has been calling together the new mutes this whole time. How did that strike you at the end of this, like, seven-issue space act that the actual greatest threat was on Earth? The greatest threat to humanity is humans. <laughs> Me throwing that aside. It's, again, it's just a lot. I, I think it makes sense. It explains everything what's going on with Charles. It explains so much of what has been happening. But I do wish they, the X-Men did get a moment of five minutes just to rest. I think it might have even been better to have this been the opening page for the next issue to, you know, have that be the start. I appreciate and I'm like, oh, oh shit, that makes so much sense. But I really kind of want the X-Men to have a moment to relax and then to be like, all right, now we actually have to go save Charles again. Well, before the X-Men can save Charles, we're going to find out what Charles has been up to in the pages of New Mutants, whether it's the New Mutants graphic novel or New Mutants 1 through 3. Xavier continued to have adventures on Earth before the X-Men make it back in issue 167, the first formal meeting of the two mutants, for an era that then begins to cross over ad nauseum. So, in a lot of ways, this was the final issue of Uncanny X-Men as we knew it, and the final episode of X's for Podcast before a dramatic shift to maintaining multiple central narrative titles through, gosh, the next six or seven years before things kind of separate back out again. Hey everyone, hope everybody had a great summer. I'm back with a lighthearted bit of fun for today's recommendation. After Messiah Complex, which I'm sure I'll cover at some point, but it's a doozy, the Xavier Mansion had been destroyed, Xavier was presumed dead, or at least missing, nothing of value was lost there, and the X-Men were, in a word, divided on what to do next, which leads to today's recommendation, Uncanny X-Men number 495 to 499, Divided. I will freely admit, there isn't a ton for me to say about this arc, but it's good clean fun without a ton of weight. The only major plot point that really comes out of this is that this is where the team gets the idea to 
relocate to San Francisco. The arc itself is <laughs> divided into two concurrent stories. One involves Wolverine, Nightcrawler, and Colossus in Russia visiting Peter's home. It's definitely the more action-y side of things, and showcases all three characters being particularly badass and cool. The other half, my preferred half, follows Emma and Scott as they vacation in the Savage Land. It totally starts off as a beach episode, and doesn't get worlds more serious than that even when they return to the mainland to rescue their friends from a mind-controlling, reality-warping hippie. How can you not love X-Men when shit like that is a sentence I can say with total seriousness? The Russia story is beautifully drawn, and does some good character work for Colossus after he's been emotionally kicked in the nads one too many times. This story takes place not long after Kitty gets lost in space, adding to Colossus's trauma conga line after the chaos of Messiah Complex, plus all his family drama, plus M-Day. Yeah, guy needs a vacation. And we get to see tough love dad Wolverine, who I'm pretty sure is my favorite version of Wolverine. I love that hairy midget as much as anybody else, but for me, he's at his best as a mentor, or cautionary tale, to other characters. Beyond that, there isn't a ton of meat to this story in terms of plot. Again, it's just fun, well-written story, especially after a major crossover. The Savage Land San Francisco part of the story doesn't have a ton of meat on its bones either, despite having dinosaurs with literal tons of meat on their literal bones. But I love Emma and Scott, and I love their relationship, so I'm here for it. There's a line early on where Shayna and Emma are discussing Scott, and Shayna warmly accuses Emma of being soft, to which she responds, only for him, meaning Scott. And okay, dick jokes aside, it's such a good line for her. The woman is a literal diamond, but she softens for this big, dorky boy scout. Eventually, they get a call from Angel that something is amiss in San Francisco, and they're needed. They arrive in what I can only imagine hell for Republicans looks like. It's like the whole city has been warped back to the 60s and gone full hippie. Plus, we get to see hippieized versions of a bunch of characters, Angel being the only one not to have his name altered, which feels like a quality joke in and of itself. My one main complaint, if any, about this arc is that the art in the San Francisco scenes of the, of the very last issue takes a dramatic nosedive. It's not horrible, but it's a definite downgrade from what came before. Like I said, there isn't a ton to say plot-wise. This is a fun palette cleanser type story arc for the most part, and those are always worth having. Comics, and art in general, may be inherently political, but sometimes that can simply take the form of some quiet escapism for the reader. Also, issue number 497 has one of my favorite X-Men covers, with hippie-style Emma and Scott, which works way better than it should. Anyway, with that, I'm out. As always, and I feel like a broken record every time I say it, you can find me on Instagram at homo, and I'll be back next time with... Actually, I'm recording this in advance, and I don't actually know what my next one is going to be yet, so it'll be a surprise for all of us. See ya! Jonah, it has been so much fun turning towards space and following the X-Men on this adventure. We're going to spend a lot more time on Earth dealing with a lot more human concerns for quite a while, including some very famous stories like Chris Claremont and Frank Miller's Wolverine, Chris Claremont and John Buscema's Magic, the Ileana story. We're going to settle in and find out what happens when Rogue joins the X-Men, as well as when one of the X-Men tries to get married. It's going to be a very different X-verse very soon, and it's been amazing having you for this first 50 something episodes to transition the X-Men to a place where they really are a school again. Do you have any last words before Xavier's becomes a school for gifted youngsters once again? I am so ready to see Xavier's school for gifted youngsters actually be a school. Well, um, it's really not going to happen much, but they sure do try to make it seem like it. I mean, they're mutants. Could you really expect anything to go as as they planned? I, you know, they're mutants. I really don't expect anything to ever go well for them at all. I think the only person who ever knows what's going to happen to mutants is Moira. So, Jonah, until we return to talk more about the X-Men, the New Mutants, and Moira, who is going to play a huge role throughout New Mutants, so keep an eye on that. If you're a listener from Dawn of X and you want to know more about the origin of everybody's new favorite character from 50 years ago, definitely stay tuned to the upcoming New
New Mutants episodes where we will be paying special attention to the Dr. McTaggart herself. But Jonah, as I was saying, where can everybody find you online? Not connected to the Prophet Ascanti. You could actually find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you? Well, guys, as always, you can find me all over this amazing network doing shows like Now and Again with my childhood best friend Chris Podcast. Don't forget to check out the other amazing feeds of this show, like Thor Bros with my Thor bro, Kyle, as well as X's for Podcast Dawn of X, where we talk about Jonathan Hickman's revitalization of the X-Men franchise and all of its painstakingly brilliant glory. I'm also on Husband's Talk More or Less with Kevo, who you might recognize from this show on the Captain Brit feed, where we're currently talking about the Alien Legacy franchise or turning to Star Wars shortly thereafter. So if you've liked our discussions of space here, you definitely want to check that out. And don't forget to check out my music on this amazing network. We're doing games for shows like Too Fast, Too Four, Five, Six, Fury, Five, and on my Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, where I don't wear a whole lot of sleeves. Alright, Jonah, until a new convocation of mutants is called together, we'll see ya. See ya!